0: Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your everyday with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V I A H E M P.com. Okay, it's time to commit. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth.
1: It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
0: Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of children, as well as sexual assault and violence.
1: So let's time travel a bit. You'll all remember that a year or so ago, we knew a lot less about what was going on in the investigation of the Delphi murders than we do today. And one thing Anya and I always try to do when we don't know information is try to figure out a way we can figure some stuff out or get some insights.
0: Yes, that's sort of how the genesis of the murder sheet came about. Um, And so previously, we released an episode called The Delphi Murders, Double Homicides, Part 1. And we talked about a few different cases.
1: The reason we did that is because so many people were looking at the circumstances of the Delphi murders and saying this is a case where two people, two young people were killed in a public place presumably by one assailant and people were saying this is unprecedented and so we decided that one thing we could do was try to figure out if it really was unprecedented and if it wasn't unprecedented and we could find other cases where this happened we wondered if that could reveal anything to us about the Delphi case if it could give us any insights into what happened in Delphi So with that in mind, we did some research and we actually found numerous cases where this happened.
0: Yes, these cases all involved two victims who were underage children or or teenagers, and they were murdered in some sort of public place, either a park or something to that effect, essentially. And we compiled this whole list. That we were going to look into.
1: Our intent was to do a series of episodes, each one focusing on one or two of these cases to see if it would tell us anything about Delphi. And so we released, I believe, back in uh, November, an episode Delphi Murders, Double Homicides, Part One. And then shortly thereafter, the news about Kegan Klein came out, and so our Attention was focused elsewhere, and so we never released Part 2. And meanwhile, we've uh, occasionally gotten emails and texts and messages from people saying we found Part 1 interesting. Where When is Part 2 going to come out?
0: And the answer is now. Uh, we're we're kind of going off script. We're just going to share with you all the research we compiled for a number of these cases, and hopefully this will get everyone Thinking about how sometimes things that might seem, you know, totally unprecedented actually have have some precedent. Although I will say that a double homicide in a public place of two underage children is still exceptionally rare. So that's not to we're not making any statements on that. It's just to say that it has happened before. And there's certain cases that have actually been adjudicated. And you can kind of see exactly what happened to these victims in these circumstances. We don't really think that any of these have any good insight into the Delphi case at this time beyond just the broad strokes of double homicide in a public place. So we're actually not labeling this as a Delphi episode, but hopefully this will be interesting for people who kind of are looking at the Delphi crime and other crimes to just realize that, you know, sometimes things can actually form a bit of a pattern if you if you look at stuff. My name is Anya Kane.
1: And I'm Kevin Greenlee.
0: And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast.
1: Ani and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees.
0: Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes.
1: We're the Murder Sheet.
0: And this is Double Homicides Part 2. So one thing I want to note before we get started going into the details here is that we're going to switch back and forth talking about different cases. The cases that I have to talk about are are pretty horrific in terms of their details. I'll probably not be going into all the gory details of this, but just be aware that we're talking about very brutal, heinous homicides involving kids. So this is probably an episode to skip if that is something that could be Triggering or harmful to you. Um, The first case I'm going to talk about occurred on June 24th, 1993 in Houston, Texas. 14-year-old Jennifer Ertman and 16-year-old Elizabeth Pina were walking back from a pool party that they'd gone to. Uh, These two girls were very close, despite, you know, a few years age difference. They they these were very good kids. These were kids who were not known for causing trouble or anything. They were beloved by their families. Uh, Jennifer was her parents' only child. Uh, Elizabeth, I believe, had two siblings. Jennifer was so young that she'd only just started wearing makeup, as, as girls do when they kind of start entering high school sometimes. But, you know, they both had a very positive friendship. They were very, very close. Uh, very good friends. And so... After this pool party, being good kids, they realize, you know, we have an 1130 p.m. curfew. We need to get back home. And they end up taking a shortcut, unfortunately, through a park nearby that is uh, was, was called the T.C. Jester Park. And that was basically a mile away from, from Pina's, from Elizabeth's house. And unfortunately, while they were cutting through there, they encountered uh, six members of a gang called the Black and White Gang who grabbed them. You know, they were they were doing some sort of initiation. They were they were drunk. uh, And Jennifer actually broke free initially and started to run away. But when she heard her friend calling for help, she actually went back to help her. And ultimately, I'm not going to get into I mean, the the crime scene was utterly horrific but they were raped by by these gang members and then they were really horribly murdered uh and they went missing because their bodies weren't found for a number of days actually and these gang members were not master criminals by any stretch of the imagination they immediately went to the home of one of their brothers and sister-in-law and bragged about having just raped and murdered two girls they took effects from the girls Jennifer had this uh, little goofy watch and they took that as a trophy um, and they were just very proud of themselves bragging about this boasting about this horrific crime that they'd just done and uh, eventually the, uh, the, the one of the gang members brothers and his sister-in-law tipped off police about what they'd heard and police went and discovered the bodies just a horrific sight but this was adjudicated. The uh, The gang members were, were caught and sentenced, and they believe they basically got all of them. Two people, spe- uh, ba- basically the, the perpetrators were named Peter Cantu, Jose Medellin, Derek Sean O'Brien, Efrain Perez, Raul Villarreal, and Venancio Medellin. And uh, O'Brien and Medellin and Cantu have since been executed. The others have, have uh, you know, been serving life imprisonment or, or at least close to life imprisonment. But, yeah, this was, a, this was a situation that really shocked the city of Houston. It was a really horrific crime. And it was just, you know, two girls not doing anything wrong. They're, not, they're just going home to get home on time and something so horrific happens. And unfortunately, these perpetrators who were, you know, very young themselves, but certainly old enough to know right from wrong... Uh, basically used the girls' relationship and closeness with one another as a weapon to control them. So this is a story I sometimes think about when people are talking about, well, how can a one perpetrator control two people? You know, in this case, the girls were up against a gang of, of six boys. But in in other situations, you know, you could imagine that if somebody is threatening your friend and you, and you don't want to abandon your friend you you want to stay and protect them and and not leave them to some some sort of dangerous situation so yeah
1: so a couple of things are interesting there one is as you know this was not a single perpetrator is that unusual for a murder to be committed by a whole gang of people operating together
0: i would imagine that Uh, It sort of depends on the type of crime. If we're talking about a gangland shooting, I imagine there's probably a number of people involved. If it's a drive-by, you you have the driver, maybe there's multiple gunmen. Um, But in this case, it was just sort of a brutal random attack on, you know, a sexually motivated attack on two girls. I don't know what the stats are on that.
1: And then the fact that it is random is also somewhat striking. This is not a case where the perpetrators knew that the victims would be at a specific location at a specific time. It was just chance. Is that what you're telling us?
0: Yes, this was, uh, this was, and you know, these two girls were not in any way affiliated with any sort of gangs. They were just totally innocent bystanders who just happened to cross paths with these, with these guys. I will say though, that the members of this, this sort of, um, the members of this gang had actually were tied to another murder that happened previously and that was the slaying of uh 27-year-old Patricia Lopez and that happened in January of 1993 and she was basically um you know they they approached her and said can you uh, it will pay for your gas if you buy us some beer cuz we're underage but that was a ruse to uh, be able for them to to rape her and and murder her so uh, that, and and the, the ones involved in that one were Cantu O'Brien and Jose Medellin. And they, uh, you know, that was mentioned in in some of the, uh, the court documents and, and discussions about it. So they believe that they'd done this before to somebody else.
1: These random crimes are the ones that are in many ways the most frightening because they could happen to literally anyone. If you just turn the wrong corner at the wrong time you may encounter a predator.
0: Yeah, the, these 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 guys were teenagers. They were very young and they just absolutely had no sense of respect for human life or, or other people. Uh, they just saw these girls as sexual objects that were theirs to violate. And then when they realized, oh, well now they could identify us as having done this, they, they were very, very adamant that, yes, we, we realized that, they could be witnesses against us, and and so we killed them as a result of this. And and it, it, when people, when people are that far gone, and there's a possibility of just running into someone like that on your way home, it definitely is pretty um pretty shocking. But in either way, it was a very tragic case. I know it, it really deeply, deeply um affected the families of these girls, losing them at such a young age, but also losing them in such a brutal manner in such a random act of violence. Uh, you know, my heart goes out to to them. I, I I know they have been very supportive of the death penalty being applied to some of these perpetrators. And I have mixed feelings about the death penalty, but I can't say I blame them for that.
1: A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be.
0: For so many of us, lifestyle changes, like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises, are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin
1: So I want to talk about a case that happened in Michigan back in 1975, in May of 1975, to be exact. It's a day in May. It's a pleasant early summer, late spring day in May. 12-year-old Scott Hardy and his cousin, 11-year-old Mark Mellendorf, decide to go down to the lake and fish. And their parents say, that's fine, just be back by 7 p.m. And the boys never returned. They were later found deceased. One boy was found hanging by his t-shirt, and the other was found lying in water at the edge of the lake. There was some indication that sexual assault was, was a factor in the death of these young children. Subsequently, uh, another young man, he was a little bit older than the victims, 17-year-old Kenneth Nard was arrested for this crime. He was a high school dropout. He was said to be illiterate. And again, it was just a matter of chance that he happened to come across these two young boys on the day of the murders. He happened to come across them as they were fishing, and he, for some reason, he was really impressed with their fishing equipment, and he decided he wanted to try to buy the fishing poles that these boys had. The boys go up over a hill to uh, continue their fishing activities. Kenneth Nard follows them. He is gone for 90 minutes. Later, he says that he got upset with them because they did not want to... uh, because they did not want to sell their fishing equipment to him, so he kills them. And the fishing equipment is subsequently discovered in the home he shares with his mother. And he is convicted for these double murders, which, again, take place in a public area near a lake.
0: Uh, So... I'm curious in in what you were looking up about this case, I mean, having something as stupid as trying to haggle over fishing poles resulting in a sexually motivated homicide, are the fishing poles believed to just have been a pretext to attack the boys, or or what's that all about?
1: One thing that's always stuck with me in a book I read a long time ago—it wasn't even a mystery novel— Uh, There was a phrase that said, everybody has reasons and reasons don't matter. In other words, all that really counts is your actions. And I can imagine that a person could get upset for not getting something he wants, even if it's something as trivial as fishing poles. And I can imagine that this could trigger a potential uh, murderous rage. And obviously he did have some interest in the fishing poles since they were subsequently found at his home. It is really ridiculous and upsetting to think the two young lives could be snuffed out over something as trivial as fishing poles.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty horrific. Um, I I saw that in some of the UPI's uh, initial coverage of that case that a policeman described Nard as a born loser in the case, in, in in this whole situation. And yeah, sounds like it. He's still alive.
1: Yes, he's still imprisoned. Yeah, on his he gave a taped confession, and at one point during this taped confession, uh, he's asked basically what you were just asking. You know, why did you do this? And he his answer was something just told me to do it. So again, we have a random encounter. We have two victims who are not known to. The killer, uh, in this case, it's a single assailant, and it just seems to be inspired by a moment of sudden explosive rage.
0: Yeah, and and greed and lack of respect for other people's boundaries, property, persons, which sounds similar to the gang slaying that we talked about with um, Elizabeth and Jennifer.
1: And again, it's a case where the people in that case, the the people responsible took some of the personal effects of the victims not a bright move and they kept them and the same thing happened in this case
0: and they're also all the ones we've talked about so far have had teenage perpetrators who were who were not particularly sophisticated although I, i did notice didn't at some point in the in the one in the case that you're talking about didn't weren't they looking for a group of men in a in a car who turned out to be witnesses rather than perpetrators
1: Yes, that's the case. Uh, We've talked a lot about Delphi. Certainly in that case, there's always been some leads that seem interesting that go nowhere. That comes up in a lot of cases where early information you think is going to be really relevant and lead you to the culprit and the assailant ultimately just goes nowhere. It's a horrific case, and it's frightening to think that there are people out there walking amongst us who are that close to committing acts this horrific that if you say something the wrong way to the wrong person at the wrong time you could be killed
0: yeah and and that people would do that to children i think it's also really interesting you know in, in in that he disappeared for 90 minutes it sounds like from witness accounts and then came back alone And nobody saw anything that made them initially rise up, you know, call, you know, call the police or or whatnot, because at that point, it wasn't apparent that a crime had happened. He he wasn't arrested until several days after the murders. So that should also tell you that, you know, you might think that in a really heinous case that people are going to be acting really off right away, or it's going to be very obvious, but there's not always that kind of telltale sign.
1: And of course, uh, you think that when you are out in public by a lake or out walking through a park, you're safe. And unfortunately, that is not always the case.
0: Yes. Um, And that that sort of segues into the second case that I I looked up for this episode. And this uh, this crime occurred also in 1993, like my first case, which uh, but this was on March 27th, 1993. And basically, um, two friends named Charlie Keever, who was 13, and Jonathan Sellers, who was nine, went out on their bicycles. Uh, they, they had a fun day. They kind of went on, around. They, I think they went to a pet store at one point. They you know, were doing kind of the things that kids do, riding around on their bicycles in the early 90s. Um, but they never made it back home that day. But, they, yeah, they spent their morning at an arcade. They went to a pet store. They got hamburgers at rallies. And, you know, a number of people saw them out and about that day. This all occurred in the uh, San Diego County in California. They did not go home. Their parents were frantic. Two days later, uh, a cyclist is, is riding through... Um, an area of brush along the Ote river in San Diego County. And he found both of their bodies. And this was a crime scene that investigators and people who saw it said were just, was just some, one of the most horrific things that they'd ever seen. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into all the details, but I mean, it's, it, it it was very bad. These, these children were tortured before they died and in, in, in a sexual manner It's, it's, it was, it was very bad. And uh, then, you know, this, you know, devastated both of their families. Uh, One of their moms for years would, would go back to the crime scene where her son had been found with a, with a weapon and thought about, you know, killing herself via suicide as a result of the pain of this loss. And for eight years, you know, no answers were found. Uh, but DNA ended up solving this one and it tied the murders back to a man named Scott Erskine. This guy was a serial killer. He was, uh, this was not his only crime. He had also, uh, he was suspected of, of another murder that happened in Florida of a 26 year old woman named Renee Baker that happened in 1989 He was a guy who um, had grown up in a very, very dysfunctional family where his father was uh, very abusive and and, and sexually forward with his mother in front of all the kids. Um, He himself had been abusive towards his own siblings growing up, as they would testify later in trial. Uh, Later on, his defense tried to attribute some of his violence to a brain injury that he sustained when he was five in a car accident. But psychiatrists were also pretty clear throughout this process that he knew right from wrong. Basically, DNA found that the crime scene ultimately linked him to what happened. I think one thing you'll note is that I mentioned one of his other victims was a young woman. He seemed to target young women as well as these two boys in this case. So the kind of idea that every serial killer has to have a very specific uh, you know, type of, you know, type in terms of who they prey upon, I think is perhaps a little bit too rigid. And this is a guy who saw opportunity, um, and, and took it with these two boys because, um, he, it seems like from witness testimony that the boys might've been riding their bicycles in this kind of wooded area and that he essentially perhaps cut them off with his truck. And, uh, then, you know, ...kidnapped and murdered them, unfortunately. But... ...yeah, he's just a... ...violent, vile... ...man. He he, was, he died of COVID in 2020.
1: So, another random... ...assault... ...by an assailant... ...who did not know his victims. Is that correct?
0: Yes, and also, not an intelligent person... ...but he still managed to evade law enforcement... ...for eight years. Because he was a stranger... ...on stranger homicide you know before dna was widely used as much as it is today i think was it was a pretty difficult thing to solve i mean he had some sort of family tie to that area it wasn't like he was never there but he did not live there that was not closely associated with him so he came in did this really horrific thing and then sort of moved on
1: so again not a master criminal no I think that's also something interesting to note, that when we hear about murders taking place in public spaces our instinct is saying, oh this must be unusual, or if it's in a public space there must be plenty of witnesses so these things would be easier to solve. But actually if you're out in a park or near a lake it could in many instances be much more difficult to solve because maybe there's no Security footage. Maybe there's no witnesses. Maybe those are spaces where people regularly encounter people they don't know. So you may not have a natural list of suspects. I know you and I often go hiking through the park, and it's not unusual for us to see people we don't know we'll never see again. So, in many instances, finding a killer who kills in public spaces might be more difficult than finding a killer who kills someone in a home.
0: Yes. And I mean, I'll note, I mean, just to give you more information about the way this thing eventually got solved the same year he murdered the boys, this Erskine guy uh, kidnapped a woman, raped her, held her hostage for days. Uh, he, he let her go and he was uh, arrested and convicted for that crime and his DNA was was kind of, you know, taken as a result of him being a sexual offender. But that alone, you know, they weren't looking at the DNA at that point. It took the San Diego um, cold case squad reopening the case in 2001 to actually go over all the evidence, go over the DNA and and make the match to him eventually said so he was put on trial and convicted for that. So it shows you that the the benefit in some other cases we've talked about, you know, we, we wish to see more cold case squads uh, established because, you know, I'm sure the investigators tried their best with what they had in 1993, but it wasn't enough. And it took a new set of eyes going back over it and saying, how can we use this now? How has the technology changed essentially to, to kind of get answers? That's,
1: that's true. And we've talked about three cases today. I wonder if there's any observations we can make about common things between them. One thing that jumps out at me is if none of these criminals seems to have been a genius.
0: Yes. Yeah. No, no none of the. No. Uh, you don't have to be. I think if you are a brutal person who doesn't care about hurting other people and is willing to pick on people who are stronger, who are less strong than you and who are isolated in a, in a wooded area or a park setting. Uh, and you work quickly and dispatch them and, and do what you're going to do and then leave. I think, you know, that doesn't take intelligence to do that. I think people have this over, (laughs) over-exaggerated respect for people who get away with crimes because it's like, ah, they fooled the police but I don't think people realize there's a lot of dumb luck involved in this and there's also, you know investigators are dealt the cards they're dealt I mean, you know, if they don't have workable forensic evidence and they don't have any concrete witnesses or they have witnesses who saw somebody very briefly, you know, that's not, that's not a ton to go on You know, that doesn't make the person who committed the crime smart or skilled. Just makes them lucky. I don't think anyone likes to believe that because I think we all want to believe that the, you know, if something bad happens, the uh, the authorities are going to solve it and everyone's going to go home and, you know, understand what happened, even though, you know.
1: The fact of the matter is many police investigators are dedicated, even brilliant at their work and they work very hard and very smart but they still may not be able to solve the case if they don't have all of the pieces they need
0: yeah nobody likes to admit that because i think we feel safer when we just think well it must just be that the criminal was so smart that he pulled one over on the police i no one wants to think that some dumbass pardon my french is going to be <laughs> is going to be winning essentially it, when 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 such horrific crimes are, are occurring but that is, unfortunately, when you actually look at solved crimes around this and you look at the perpetrator, you know, it the myth of a, of a really a genius killer is something that I think is very, much more rare than, than pop culture would have you believe.
1: Are there any more commonalities between these three cases that jump out at you?
0: Brutality of the crimes. These were all brutal crimes. These were all brutal crimes of a sexual nature. And, you know, there might have been different, you know, stated reasons by the killers, but it it seems like all of these were about uh, taking out sexual sadism on on people who on children, on children, on, on kids who couldn't fight back and were. You know, just at the wrong place at the wrong time. it's they're all very upsetting.
1: yeah, these are very upsetting cases. It's always upsetting when anyone gets killed but for some reason when it's a child, it seems to hit us a little bit harder and I think it's also hits us even harder when it's a child doing something as innocent as just going fishing with a buddy.
0: yeah or, or walking home so you can get home on time so your parents don't yell at you. Or, you know, riding bicycles. I mean, it's, it's it's sick. It's sick that there are people out there like this who do this. But there are, and it, it doesn't help anybody to pretend like there isn't.
1: Well, we'd like to thank all of you for your patience in waiting for so long for part two of this particular series of episodes. And thank you, as always, for listening.
0: If you have information that you'd like to share with us about Logan, the Kleins, or the Delphi case in general, then email murdersheet at gmail.com. We protect our sources.
1: If you need to get in contact with police about this case, email your tip to abbyandlibbytip at c-a-c-o-s-h-r-f dot com or call the tip line at 765-822-3535. 765-822-3535.
0: To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. Thanks for the interest.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com.
0: To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet and on Facebook at Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.